Matthew Carnegie, one of the pastors at East Point Bible Church, and this is the Touch Points Podcast. We have finally arrived at the end of our all-scripture mini-series, trying to better understand the different parts of the Bible, and I hope those of you who have been following have grown more confident in your ability to read your whole Bible and get the most out of studying any part of it. For our final session, we'll be taking a look at the most controversial kind of literature in scripture, the apocalyptic portions. This is where some of the biggest misunderstandings, most unbalanced theology, and greatest intimidation about God's word can be found in Christian circles. So we want to make sure we take the time to know how to read it for ourselves. I don't have the time in this recording to try to settle every debate, but knowing our overarching goal is to help you, the listener, feel more comfortable reading and growing in these parts of the Bible, I am going to use our time today to define what these parts of the Bible are, share some key features that help you to understand them appropriately, and steer us in the direction of what we should take away from studying them. Now, some of you probably have no idea what apocalyptic even means, so let's start there. It comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, where we get the word apocalypse from, but the Greek word itself simply means revelation. It should come as no surprise, then, that it's the title of the last book of the Bible, and that apocalyptic literature refers to the Bible book revelation and similar portions of Scripture. Based on how it's defined, theologians debate over which other parts of the Bible should count as apocalyptic literature, but generally all agree that many parts of Daniel fit this description. Other possible candidates come from many different parts of the Bible that deal with eschatology, the study of the last things, and the ones that bear the resemblances to to Revelation specifically, such as some or all of the last several chapters of Ezekiel, the book of Joel, and or other similar sections of the prophetic books of the Old Testament, or the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25. It is also noteworthy that several non-biblical examples of apocalyptic literature were written between the Old and New Testaments and a little past the New Testament that help inform our understanding of how the genre works. But we do want to be careful how much we let extra-biblical literature define inspired scripture. So how should we define it? Like I said, theologians differ, but here are a few traits that are pretty well agreed upon and, more importantly, are ones you should be aware of in order to understand these parts of the Bible better. Many parts of Scripture have at least one of these traits, but truly apocalyptic literature should have most, if not all, of them to fit this bill. First, and most basic of all, apocalyptic portions of Scripture are concerned with eschatology. As I mentioned earlier, that's the study of the last things, meaning apocalyptic texts discuss the end times. That's where we can find what little details we are given about what heaven will be like, how God's plan will work out to get us there, and even what signs will precede the end. There are usually portions in them that relate back to the time they were written, but they are definitely forward-looking in their approach and substance. The next key trait is that one part of the future on which they tend to focus heavily is God's judgment of those who oppose him and or his people. The judgment on the wicked is shown both in earthly terms as God stops them as he rescues his people from destruction, as well as in spiritual terms of the final judgment and condemnation of all who die in their sin. This is portrayed both as a comfort to his people and as a warning to those outside his people. Another important observation is that apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic. 
probably the highest number of debates about these texts is the amount of references that are to be taken literally versus symbolically, but all sides agree that there are definitely symbolic descriptions contained in there. In the book of Revelation specifically, the Apostle John is borrowing symbols from all over the Old Testament to tie together many of the eschatological threads that were started in there. So in order to best understand it, you need to know your Old Testament well enough to pick up on those references or at least be willing to look them up as they occur. For example, in Revelation 5, Christ is referred to as a lion in verse 5 and then as a lamb in the very next verse. That seems like a pretty big difference to reconcile. So which is he, a lion or a lamb? Well, that's not really the question to ask of this text. Instead, one should ask, where in Scripture is John pulling these images of a lion and of a lamb that could apply to the Messiah? In Genesis 49.9, Jacob describes Judah as like a lion before prophesying the following verse that he will rule and have dominion. Jesus is the descendant of Judah who fulfills this. Likewise, the lamb probably harkens back to the Passover lamb from Exodus 12 and the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 53.7 that he was led as sheep to the slaughter. In both cases, the lamb was a sacrifice that saved the people in one sense or another, an allusion John himself already connected to Christ in his gospel when he quoted John the Baptist declaring over Jesus, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, in chapter 1 verse 29. So in this case, Jesus is neither lion nor lamb in any literal sense, but in order to add layers to its prophecy of what will happen in the future, Revelation describes him as both to get the reader to draw on all the biblical background informing who Christ is and how that affects his future. One final trait is important to remember when trying to figure out how to apply some of these texts to ourselves. Apocalyptic scriptures also generally include some kind of more immediate concern that shapes our understanding of them. Daniel spends a good deal of time describing the immediate problems he and other Israelites were facing in captivity. And Revelation first addresses seven churches in Asia Minor who needed encouragement and exhortation to overcome their current trials before moving into the future. In all cases, the writer is trying, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, to encourage God's people in the struggles of their day by reminding and or revealing to them what will happen in the future. This brings me to how we should read them for ourselves today. Most people who read Revelation or any other apocalyptic text are often enamored with the special insight of seeing into the future, and also frustrated that the texts don't give us all the details or answer every question we could have. But when that happens, they're missing the point of the text. God isn't glorified simply because his people know the future. God is glorified by his people overcoming in the present. If knowing that God will win in the end, that his enemies will be utterly defeated, that his people will be ultimately vindicated, that righteousness will triumph over sin and evil is what will give his people the strength and perspective to live well no matter what their circumstances happen to be then God is happy to give us the information we need in order to be able to overcome here and now. So when we read them today, first of all, we shouldn't read them just to know about the future. We can and should try to get a handle on what they tell us, because having a clearer picture of the future will help sharpen our perspective on the present. But we should be willing to accept the limits on what those texts actually tell us without resorting to wild speculations to fill in the gaps. 
I should mention a quick note here about how these texts have been abused in the past. Knowing these texts are highly symbolic, but not appreciating their value for us in the present has caused many Christians since the Middle Ages, through the Reformation, and even over the last century in America, to be quick to apply the future events of Revelation to themselves and be guilty of false prophecy. Even otherwise astute theologians like Jonathan Edwards have been quick to try to identify the symbols in there with events and or people from history and or their own day that ultimately proved incorrect. The most common being people attributing any powerful leader holding enormous earthly influence with the Antichrist, ranging from Napoleon Bonaparte all the way to the Pope. This should serve as a warning to us today that the purpose of these texts isn't to try to get us to see these things in our, in our own day so much as to strengthen us in this day in light of the future. Yes, Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24 to be alert and watch for the signs of the end. But that wasn't so we would know we were in the end, so much as to warn us that those signs would be building reminders to make sure we are ready for when that end finally comes, as his parables in the following chapter demonstrate. So that brings us back to what we should do with them today. Like I said, they should strengthen us and give us perspective for today, so when we face trials and persecution, we can take heart knowing that God will ultimately win, and that no purpose of His will ultimately be thwarted. We know that we will be vindicated and how we will be blessed so we can be bold here and now. We know sin will be judged and how it will be done, so our evangelism can be that much more urgent. We know our future holds an eternity that is affected by what we do on this earth, so we should spend the time we have here focused on what will do the most good for then, instead of focusing so much on what will affect the next day, or even the next year, or even the next 50 years. What do we do with the individual texts then? Ask ourselves the appropriate questions that will help us find the reason they're included. What do these symbols refer to? How does that inform what's going on here? What is accomplished by these events? What does that say about God's plan for human history? How does this event from the future shape my perspective on what I'm doing today? How is this trying to shape my priorities? And, as always, what does this reveal about who God is? What does he expect me to do and be in light of it? As we wrap up, my prayer is that what I've shared today will help you to read the apocalyptic texts with a greater awareness of what God wants us to get from them instead of merely satisfying our curiosity. I hope that they enrich your faith with an eternal perspective that radically alters how you live here and now. And as we finish this mini-series on all scripture, I hope you view all the parts of your Bible with fresh eyes that see much more of how God is trying to speak through them. At the very least, I hope you now have the confidence to read and study every text so you don't miss out on any of the riches of the Word of God, His revelation of Himself to His people. It is His gift to us, so I hope you treasure every word. Have a great week in the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. Music